Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC's orthopedics team, offering hip, knee, joint, spine, and back treatments. Learn more at upmc.com slash centralpaortho. Remember the fight over whether to legalize medical marijuana in Pennsylvania less than a decade ago? Parents of children who suffered seizure disorders and had fewer seizures when they used medical marijuana led that battle. When medical marijuana was approved, it was hailed as a victory for those children, but also for the two political parties in Pennsylvania's capital coming together for a good cause. Fast forward to 2023. Medical marijuana, which supposedly doesn't get anyone high, has been approved for more than 20 medical conditions, but there is one condition that is getting more prescription than others, anxiety disorder. It has led to questions about marijuana's effectiveness, how the state's program is administered, marketing, incorrect medical claims, and how doctors are getting paid. Spotlight PA reporter Ed Mahan investigated the issue and is with us on The Spark today. Ed, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thank you. All right, so what prompted this investigation, Ed? I mean, this goes back to June 2021. At the time, we were reporting on confusion over medical marijuana rules, essentially. There was a tragic case in Bucks County where a young man was denied addiction treatment funding because of confusion over medical marijuana, uh, and he tragically you know, died from an overdose a few weeks later. And that really got us looking into this. And so we started asking for data about just trying to understand the program a little better and, and how many people were qualifying for certain conditions in the program. So just to be clear, an overdose, he didn't overdose for medical marijuana. No, it was a, it was a fentanyl, fentanyl overdose. Something that he turned to because he couldn't get the prescription. Well, yeah, I mean, there, that was part of the no, no, no. So the addiction, he was trying to get into addiction treatment funding. He was trying to get into addiction treatment for his opioid addiction. He got denied opioid addiction treatment because there was confusion that like he had a medical marijuana card and people were confused about the rules and they thought he wasn't eligible for this assistance. And so so he was he was denied opioid addiction assistance uh, because of his medical marijuana card. And this was something he and his family did not know was going to be an issue at all. Yeah, I just want to make clear that it wasn't medical marijuana that he overdosed on you. I don't think you can overdose on it. Uh, you didn't get cooperation from the state on this investigation, did you? Yeah, so I mean, so we were reporting on that one case and we were wondering how, you know, how many other people are getting approved for marijuana for opioid use disorder or other conditions. And we reached out to the state to ask. We thought it was a relatively straightforward question. They wouldn't provide it. We submitted a request under the state's right to know law. They still want to provide it. We appeal to the state Office of Open Records, which uh, decides these issues. And then the Office of Open Records ruled in our favor in uh, September of 2021. And then the Department of Health decided to take us to Commonwealth Court, still refusing to release this data. What was their argument? So they were arguing that the Law, medical marijuana law has broad patient privacy protections. We weren't seeking any individual information about individual patients, uh, but they were arguing that the protections were so broad that this aggregate data, so the data about how many people qualify because of an anxiety disorder diagnosis, they were arguing that that wasn't allowed to be released. 
and I'll say, I mean, we in our case pointed to examples of them selectively releasing similar information. So our argument was one, the law is not uh, that broad. And two, the department had released comparable information in the past. So how did we get to a point where medical marijuana was held up as a relief for children with seizure disorders and a painkiller for other illnesses and conditions like cancer to the point where we are today? So, I mean, that's a great question. So the law, in as you know, in 2016, it passed, it identified 17 qualifying conditions. Epilepsy was on there as well as pain. The law created a process where the med- there's a board called the Medical Mar- Marijuana Advisory Board. They can make recommendations. The health secretary can act on those recommendations. And so there's been a, a process where people apply to have conditions added to the program. And in 2019, there were several different applications, but the board recommended anxiety be added. There wasn't, you know, we've gone through the transcripts. There wasn't a whole lot of discussion or debate about it at the time on the board. Um, It was a split vote, though, but there wasn't a lot of debate. And then the health secretary, Rachel Levine, at the time, she later approved it as a qualifying condition. And when she did that, she said it shouldn't be a first line treatment. People should still go to counseling and therapy. But the regulations themselves don't require that those things. It can it can. I mean, the way the regulations are now, they don't require counseling or therapy. There's nothing to prevent it being used as a first line treatment. So that is the crux of your report is that anxiety disorder is the condition that most people are getting a prescription card for today. What did you find? So, yeah, sorry, let's pull up the charts here. But, you know, it was added in 2019. We looked at data for six years. We offer 2021 as the example. But there were, you know, there were more than 385,000 certifications that year. Um, More than 230,000 had anxiety listed as one of the qualifying conditions. And then there were about 151,000 where that was the only qualifying condition. And those 151,000 are really the sort of key ones that we focused on a lot in our conversations with the experts, because those are the 151,000 that without those people wouldn't, you know, presumably qualify for the program if anxiety had not been added. Do you know the percentages of people who get their prescriptions today uh, are citing anxiety disorder for that those prescriptions? So, so I mean, I can tell you for 2021, just on, well, the data we have is just like the certifications, how many were created and issued. And so in 60% of the certifications, anxiety disorders were a factor. And then in about 40%, anxiety was the only qualifying condition, the only reason they qualified. All right. So here's the big question. Does medical marijuana help people become less, less anxious? In other words, does it help to provide some relief to those who are suffering from anxiety disorder? Yeah. All you know, we talked to a lot of experts, and the the consensus is that there's not significant scientific evidence to say that it does help with anxiety. There's there's not the the clinical data to support that claim. I mean, there was a big report from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, you know, that found that that there's evidence that it can make social anxiety disorder worse. Um, and then overall, there's just a lot of unknown about whether it will help across the board. I mean, one doctor we talked to, he compared it to, to wine. Like you can have a glass of wine at night and that might make you 
feel less anxious, but that doesn't mean it's a he, it's something he would want to prescribe as a medical treatment. So th there appear to be uh, some difference. There appears to be some difference of opinion. For, and you quoted uh, someone from Minnesota, for, for example, who said that uh, we have more anxiety today, about a third of Americans suffering from some type of anxiety, that this is not a bad thing, that we should be trying to find ways to help those people. Yeah, I mean, so I, it was interesting. So there's, there's like, there's two big issues with, with that that are that we can come out with this data. One is there's the question of whether mar marijuana is helping people who suffer from anxiety, and two, there's the question of whether the patients who are people who are approved as patients, whether they meet the true clinical definition of anxiety disorder, and whether or whether it's being used as de facto legalization. For, for some number of people. And that then, you know, the expert I talked to in Minnesota, uh, Dr. Alec Widge, you know, he made the point that he believed that these patients are, you know, the vast, vast majority of these patients are suffering from these conditions, really do have anxiety disorder and are experiencing harm in their daily lives. But I mean, he was of the position that there's a great unknown about whether this is going to do more harm than good. And the way he put it was, it's, this giant experiment on people's brains that's taking place. A lot of this is anecdotal. When you said that uh, <clears throat> some people have reported that uh, they had less anxiety after using medical marijuana, again, anecdotal. Why isn't there much research on this? Is it because Pennsylvania is one of the few states or that many other states are not uh, prescribing medical marijuana for anxiety disorders? Yeah, I mean the lack of federal re the lack of uh, federal research uh, or lack of research is you know a long-standing problem in medical marijuana. There it goes back you know decades because of the federal restriction has made you know doing types of experiments more difficult and make it's put barriers in place to make research harder. Um, and so that that that's a major factor. And then you, so you have other states. There I believe there's uh, you know some states there's Minnesota, Hawaii. In Ohio, their medical marijuana advisor, those medical marijuana program leaders, they have all rejected adding anxiety as a qualifying condition. They cited the lack of scientific evidence. They cited the potential for some strains of cannabis to do uh, to make anxiety symptoms worse. And they decided they cited other, you know, what they called unintended consequences. So there are, I mean, there are relatively few states that specifically have anxiety as a qualifying condition in their medical marijuana program. In your story, you said that, uh, and I, I think this was a quote, that almost anyone can get a prescription for medical marijuana today. That, I mean, that was, we talked to, you know, more than 20 experts, including patients, including um including patients, uh, doctors, supporters of medical marijuana. And that was sort of a general consensus. And and the re and there's you know two ways of looking at that. One is just anxiety is so broad that and there's a distinction between experiencing anxiety, having trouble sleeping a few nights, you know, having trouble sleeping one night a week or something like that this past week versus having a clinical definition of anxiety. And so one, there's just a simple fact that a lot of these certification companies, uh, and one of the big concerns we heard from doctors is that some of them aren't requiring documentation. They aren't requiring records of a prior diagnosis. And there's there's two parts to that concern. One is if patients are just, you know, one day saying, calling up these places and saying, maybe I have anxiety. I'm not sure. And if they're not getting fully vetted, 
then they might get approved even though there are they might not have the symptoms on an ongoing basis. I mean, and two, there's just the question of people who want some type of legal protection, you know, whether they think it'll help them provide some employment protections, provide some maybe DUI protections. The protections get fuzzy too, but there is a hope that they can offer some legal protections who, who then go through the process and just, you know, check the boxes and say, yeah, sure, I have anxiety. Ed, before we go any further, does medical marijuana, can people get high from medical marijuana? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's my understanding that, yeah, yeah I mean, some of these components have, you know, some of these marijuana you can buy in stores have high THC. And so that is, um, yeah, it's possible. Well, see, I go back to the original debate over this back in uh, 2015, 2016. And that was one of the things we heard most often is that no one is going to get medical marijuana uh, to get high. So you're saying that uh, there are some uh, some examples now of more THC and people actually are getting a high like they would from smoking pot. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's the yeah, the, the, what we heard is that, I mean, it's very common for the, the cannabis sold in stores to in the dispensaries to have high THC. I think that's one of the we didn't get into this in the story, but that's one of the criticisms of sort of the current system is that this very high THC, which is the, the component that get the compound that get, is known to get you high. Um, and that the strains that are sold or the strain, the comp, the versions that are sold in stores have that high THC. And so people do get high and there's, you know, there, um, there can be a fine line, obviously, if, if someone's like using cannabis before bed to help them sleep, is it, um, are you, are they feeling you know, that euphoric effect? It, it, you know, it, it does have medical value, you know, it does help them fall asleep. So. Mm. Is uh, medical marijuana or how is medical marijuana taken or administered? You know, there's um, there's a variety of, of ways. I mean, I think we have like the dry leaf. We have um, tincture. We have like the tinctures people use. Uh, vaping is is fairly common as well. Um, you know, there's been there's the issue with the edibles that you can't buy edibles in stores, um, but you can like create your own versions of edibles. But yeah. One of the criticisms I've heard of Pennsylvania's medical marijuana program is that it is expensive to purchase. How mm-hmm. expensive is it? Uh, I I don't have I mean I don't have those numbers in front of me, I, but I do heard it's one of like the more expensive states in the in the country, and they, they've been doing stuff to try and uh, get that down, but it's still fairly expensive. Is it covered by insurance? Generally, no, it's not covered by insurance. And so that's the big issue. So the, the the marijuana itself isn't covered by insurance. And then often when people get the certification, when they get the approval from the doctor, um, that they're often paying out of pocket a few hundred dollars to get these approvals from a doctor. All right. So what is the process for getting a prescription? So the law itself says that, you know, the patient has to be under the doctor's continuing care. But, you know, what we hear from a lot of people is that you go often people go to the online appointments or they find a company online and they schedule a telemedicine appointment, whether virtual or over the phone. And then they talk to a doctor who then, you know, certifies them for medical marijuana saying they have that condition. And then once they have that certification, um, then they can get their card from the state. And then once they have their card, then they can go to a dispensary to buy marijuana. Um, and so with that, you know, I think with the big debate we hear about is with that consultation, like how in depth is that consultation? How much time are 
uh, patients spending talking to doctors and, you know, what information are they being provided? And then the other big what question is, do these patients and doctors have any sort of ongoing relationship? And, you know, some do, obviously, but there's, especially with the concern is with larger certification companies, is that people don't really know the doctor beforehand, and then they don't really have any way of contacting them afterwards. And so that would, you know, that's not the spirit of the medical marijuana law, which is saying they should be under the continuing care. And there are very few, if any, examples where uh, medication is prescribed that way. So uh, the, you can make some comparisons there. A few other things in your reporting, Ed, I wanted to ask about. Businesses making misleading or incorrect medical claims benefit from unequal advertising roles and uh, uh, tying a doctor's payment to patient approvals. I know those are three different things, but uh, talk about those if you would. Yeah, sounds good. So, I mean, one, the unfair advertising rules. So the way the rules are written now, like a company can advertise as much as they want, but an individual doctor can't advertise. They can't. And we've had, we've talked to some doctors, we got records through the right to know process where the Department of Health was warning doctors for making statements on their website, noting that they were able to approve patients for medical marijuana. And these doctors didn't think they were advertising. They thought they were just, you know, saying factual information o- online. And so this system, you know, creates, makes it easier for these certification companies to dominate the market. And it makes it harder for doctors who are trying to operate on their own to get in front of patients. And, you know, one of the reasons that matters is that in our reporting, we, you know, we did a story last year, we analyzed more than 60 websites and we found, and then we shared the findings with a range of experts. And there was a lot of concern over the claims made by medical marijuana companies, particularly some companies that were promoting cannabis as a alternative to federally approved medication for opioid use disorder. And these federally approved medications, they have a long track record. They have um, a lot of scientific evidence and data supporting them behind them. And the risk is that if someone is turning to cannabis instead of these, um, these opioid use disorder medications, then they're putting themselves at greater risk of overdosing and dying. What part, if any, Ed, does the debate over legalizing marijuana for recreational use play in this? Yeah, I mean, it's a, I mean, it's a really big issue. I mean, New York, New Jersey have legalized marijuana for rec- adult use. Uh, Maryland, the voters passed it last fall, and that program is being rolled out now. And, you know, we there's a pro-legalization group that was is specifically saying that if Pennsylvania lawmakers aren't going to legalize it here, people should use the medical program as an underground railroad railroad situation. So, you know, there's and there's an ongoing question of sort of just like fairness. If, if we're creating this medical system that basically anybody can get approved, why are we making people jump through these hoops while, you know, to pay a few hundred dollars for this certification while also still arresting people for marijuana possession charges? You know, something you mentioned a little bit earlier, you were talking about federal restrictions. The federal government still classifies marijuana as a narcotic. Does that play a role in this at all? As I said, like as a Schedule One drug, as the most, you know, worst types of, uh, I mean, yeah, I think that, that plays a role with the the, the research restrictions. I mean, we, we have seen, you know, the, some of the research restrictions improve over the years, um, but that's still, that's still, you know, a major factor in this marijuana debate. Hmm. 
So you've done a lot of work on this issue over the past couple years. Uh, has it gotten the attention of Pennsylvania lawmakers, those who make policy and maybe have some questions about how this program is being run? You know, we, there's to that medical marijuana advisory board I talked, I mentioned, you know, that includes doctors and includes um, medical professionals. It includes people with sort of, uh, you know, patient advocates as well. And in, in November, they were asking the Department of Health for clarity about one, how they're overseeing uh, third party companies, what they're doing, how they're overseeing advertising and how they're overseeing the certification process. And if there are true consultations happening true thorough consultations happening you know we've talked to some lawmakers but i mean it's we haven't seen we've seen some efforts to change the medical marijuana program more most recently but um we haven't seen a major overhaul formally introduced i know there's legislation from senator regan and senator brewster about that they proposed, but they haven't actually haven't seen it yet. We only have a minute left. And Ed, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. But uh, I, I, it almost seems, now you tell me, as if you've done more investigating into this than what state government has. <laughs> I mean, that's nice of you to say, but I mean, yeah, I mean, we're trying to understand how this program works and show the impact of these decisions that people make in Harrisburg and how they are actually played out across the state. Ed Mahan is a reporter with Spotlight PA, WITF uh, Multimedia is, is a partner of uh, Spotlight PA. Ed, thank you very much. Of course, Ed, former WITF employee at, as well. So he's thank a veteran of, of being on the and, radio. And a spelling bee champion on the <laughs> That's right. I forgot about that. Hey, Ed, thank you very much for being thank with us. Thank you so today. much.